If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Earlier in the service, we sang um, the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was written by Charles Wesley, and it, it's really interesting because Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns during his lifetime. And uh, he, he's actually one of the most prolific writers. Um, the only other one who wrote more than him uh, was Fanny Crosby. And uh, she um, wrote a lot of verse, and, uh, and she was blind. And so um, she would make verses in her mind, and then they would be put to music. But Charles Wesley, he, he would write um, these hymns, and he took these hymns from real life. Um, someone actually figured out how many verses a day he had to write over his lifetime, and it was really pretty phenomenal. It was um, quite a few verses per day that he had to write in order to um, put out over 6,000 um, hymns. Some people said it may have even been up to 8,000 hymns. We're still singing a lot of those songs. 300 years later. Um, Hymns like, Love's Redeeming Work is Done, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, or Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. And um, Charles, he was a theologian, but he would still take um, the the inspiration for the hymns out of everyday life. Uh, For instance, one of the hymns that he wrote, it was after a group of drunken men broke into one of their services that they were having singing drinking songs. And so he took the tune and he turned it into a hymn, uh, and uh, it, it really is true that um, many of the hymns were actually barroom songs um, before um, someone would say, hey, these are beloved, so let's put words to them that actually mean something. So one of the tunes that he took and he turned into a hymn has the words, listen to the cause of sin, why should a good be evil? Music lasts long too long, pressed to obey the devil. Drunken, loud, lewd, or light, flowed to the soul's undoing, widened and strewn with flowers the way down to eternal ruin. Say, if your hearts are tuned to sing, is there a greater subject? Harmony in all its strains may bring. Jesus' name is sweeter. Jesus' name the dead can raise. Show us our sins forgiven. Fill us with a life of grace. Carry us up to heaven. You know, taken from real life, and he actually wrote the song so that if it happened again, they could just start singing the hymn and drown out the drunken song. Sounds interesting, huh? Um, But uh, it's as though um, Charles Wesley was saying, hey, why should the devil have all the good music? Uh, That was a song from about 15, 20 years ago. Um, They thought they were being original. They weren't. Charles Wesley did it first. Um, He and his um, friend George Whitfield actually um, penned the song that we have right now, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, He actually wrote the verses, and originally it was, Hark how the welkin rings. Welkin, how heaven rings. Um, Later, George Whitfield adjusted the words, adapted the words to the song that we sing today. And that song uh, is really a lot of what's been in my mind as I've been preparing for the Christmas season. The first stanza describes the good news of the Savior's birth. God has sent the one who will reconcile the sinner back to himself. Therefore, all nations should rise and sing and proclaim the good news, which is Christ the King. And so that first stanza, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. You know, God has reconciled 
the sinner back to himself. The second stanza speaks of the mystery of um, Christ's coming and the good news in it. Christ by heaven, highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's room. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That's, that's the verse that's been in my mind as we're walking through Hebrews. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleases man with men to dwell. Jesus are Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. The third stanza emphasizes the accomplishment of Christ in the victory that he brings. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. You know, sometimes we sing these songs and, and maybe we don't realize the depth that's really there and, and what the songs are reminding us of and how, how, you know, the good, the best music that we sing comes right out of Scripture. Um, it's said that Charles wrote the song after hearing the bells ringing in London. And it just um, reminded him of the angels singing, or at least proclaiming over the top of the shepherds. The events in the chronology of Christmas are in Matthew and Luke. But the reason why we're in Hebrews during this Christmas season is is because we have the chronology, we have the history, we have all of the events in Matthew and Luke, but, but we have the meaning of Christmas in Hebrews and then in other passages like John chapter 1. And so that's where I want to spend our time this morning. And we're going to start by reading the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. And and that actually takes us back to Hebrews 1. We have to pay close attention to what we've heard. And then in chapter 1, it says, In the past, God spoke through our ancestors, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And then he picks up where he's left off in chapter 2, and he says, we have to pay careful attention to these things that we have heard. And then it says, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There's a warning here. Be careful. We have to pay careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. Years ago, I was in the Bahamas on a mission trip. I know that that sounds absolutely horrible. Um, it, it, it was a serious mission trip. Is um, I was in college, and we took a group of students to the Bahamas where we were going to do children's ministry. And uh, the Bahamas is a really interesting culture. It has a lot of American culture, but it has a lot of its own culture. But there's a lot of darkness in the Bahamas. 
you know, out of the Rastafarian music and all of that, the drug culture um, from the 60s and the 70s, that finds its place there in the Bahamas. And, and it's the only place where I've been where I've actually been a- offered marijuana in the presence of a police officer. And uh, literally, there was a booth set up on the beach, and, uh, and someone called me over and said, um, hey, you want some of this? And, and I, I didn't know what this was, and I'm, what is that? Well, it's marijuana. Uh, no, um, isn't that illegal? Oh, yes, it's okay. He, he's been paid, <laughs> pointing to the police officer. I'm like, uh, no, is, is, uh, I'm actually here on a mission trip. Well, that's okay, too. <laughs> But um, we were on this beach. Just the first day, we just visited the beach just before we got into doing kids ministry. We actually had a hurricane while we were there too. So a bunch of Montana people in a hurricane. That was really interesting. Um, but, uh, but on that first day um, at the beach, um, I was swimming out in the ocean and I didn't realize how far I'd gotten from shore. And I also didn't see um, the signs that were warning people not to get out too far. And what had actually happened is, is that, um, that I just, I just kind of drifted out further than what I expected to be. And what I didn't realize is, is that in that drift, it, it, it was actually a riptide and it was taking me out into the ocean. And I didn't know that until I heard a whistle and a lifeguard who was getting really anxious because I'd gotten so far out that it was getting scary for him because he knows what happens when you drift too far. And it actually took me quite a while to get back to shore because all of a sudden is, is I had the riptide working against me and pulling me away. Be careful. Spiritual drift happens. Before you know it, business, work, fun, or temptation will pull you out and then you will be in a tide that pulls you and pulls you and pulls you further away. The author reminds us that this spiritual drift happens, but the author also says is that we are responsible. We will be held accountable. And he says that in the Old Testament days, people were held accountable for, for going against the law. And there's a sense in which is is that we are to be held even more accountable because we have the full message of salvation. And so be careful. But then the author reminds us about the meaning of Christ's coming. And he begins by saying is, is that it's to proclaim salvation. The first why behind the meaning of Christmas is hinted at in these early verses and made even more clear as we get further into the passage. It's to proclaim the message of salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, confirmed by eyewitnesses, testified in signs and wonders and miracles of Jesus, and then further supported by the gifts given by the Holy Spirit to believers at his will and at his pleasure. And so it's to proclaim this message of salvation. And, and first of all, that's announced by Jesus. That's announced by God, even in John 3, 16. For God's to love the world, there's a sending of the Son into the world. There's the eyewitnesses who get to see the ministry of Jesus and participate in the ministry of Jesus. And then there's the signs and the wonders and the miracles of Jesus that further testify about the message of salvation. And then when we put our faith in Jesus, 
You know, because Jesus said, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as an orphan. I will send the Holy Spirit. And we're told that he sends the Holy Spirit to us. And when we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And then also gives us gifts, spiritual gifts to be used in the body of Christ. And all of these, all of these proclaim the salvation of Christ. The second reason for the coming of Christ is to restore the order of creation. And so in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, it says, It is not to the angels that he has subjected, subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you cared for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that was not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is a complicated passage. When the author mentions the world to come, there might be a question in our mind, what does he mean? Does he mean what happens after we die and go to be with him? Or does it mean something else? And, and I would lean towards that something else is, is that it, it means this future kingdom that Christ talked about while he was here is, is, you know, behold, the kingdom of God is near and present. And there's this talk of the kingdom of God and, and there's a sense in which is, is that it's the already and the not yet is, is that the, the kingdom of God has already been proclaimed and, and we can experience the first taste of the kingdom of God when we put our faith in Jesus. But it will not be fully realized until Christ comes again. I don't think that what's being talked about here is life after death. There are several passages in Hebrews that suggests that, that the kingdom of God is what we're talking about and that it's available to those who live by faith. And then the author says that it's not the angels who will be over the world to come. When we look at scripture, we could easily say that the angels are over this world. But we could say more than that because we could say is is that the fallen angels are also over this world. When you look in Daniel, you find that Daniel has references to the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. You have Daniel praying and, and praying to God and seemingly not getting any answers to his prayers. And he prays and prays and prays. And then finally the angel shows up and speaks to Daniel to show Daniel what's to come to pass. And he said is, is that your prayers have been heard. I would have been here sooner, but the prince of Persia kept me from being here. And that, that just is like mind-blowing because what, it, what that tells us is, is that there's actually these spiritual battles that are going on. And there, there are these fallen angels and these heavenly angels that are over creation. Even Satan is called 
the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world. And what this passage indicates is that humans were made a little bit lower than the angels, but at the same time are crowned with glory and honor. And that points back to the fact that God raised up humanity to care for creation. And we, we have forsaken that responsibility. God made humans, not angels, to care for the earth. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, their job was to care for all of creation. It wasn't the angels that God subjected the world to or the world to come to. God said, said to humans, you govern creation. I'm going to put everything under your feet. But now we look around the world and we see that that is totally not true. There's more chaos than care. The world is in rebellion to God. And people are at enmity with God and with each other. There is very little that we're actually in control of. The nations are often at war with each other. Natural disasters abound. Boy, we can say that right now, can't we? As the Bible says, even creation cries out for its redemption. And the natural disasters are the perfect representation of that. Is that even creation has been affected by the fall. And the reason why we have what we see on the news right now, where communities are destroyed and people's lives are taken by natural disasters, is just a part of the fall. We are not in control, are we? And then we make it personal. Because the truth is, is that we're not even in control of our own actions and our own passions. We naturally turn towards sin. We're often the living epitome of the line in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing which says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Often, we find ourselves drifting away from the one who gave his life for us. And this happens to us as believers you know, just because we put our faith in Christ doesn't mean that we don't wander. It's the hymn writer who's saying, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That there's still that pull toward the things of the world. Even the most devout among us often find ourselves being like the Apostle Paul who says, there are the things that I want to do that I do not do. And the things that I do not want to do, I often do. For in Romans chapter 7, verse 9. So what happened? What happened that has brought about this mess that we're in. Well, we abdicated our authority to do and to be what God created us for. 
and we rebelled against him. And you might think is as well, that's true of Adam, but certainly not me. But every day, we reenact the garden when we do our own thing. In the Genesis story, God gives authority to mankind, and then mankind essentially gives it to the snake. And it all goes horribly wrong. So what was supposed to be true, creation being in the care of humanity, is not true. The author says, yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to them. Thankfully, that's not where the author stops. He says, but we do see Jesus. We see Jesus. Over the last few weeks, I've said that if we could summarize Hebrews into three words, it would be Jesus is greater. He's greater than everything else, and and he's greater than everyone else in all of creation. He stepped out of heaven. He became a little lower than the angels. How can that be? How can it be that Jesus, first enthroned in heaven, can, can then be a little bit lower than the angels? Well, he took on flesh. He became one of us. Remember what it said about us, a little lower than the angels? And he became a little lower than the angels. He took on the frailty of humanity, the the creator becoming dependent on his creation for a period of time. I mean, that's always one of the most astounding things to me about the incarnation is that the God of the universe, the creator of all that is, took on flesh and was a baby being held in the arms of one of his creation, totally dependent. Why take on flesh? And if we were to look deeper into scripture, we would find is is because since Adam failed, a better Adam had to come. One who could understand all of our frailties, all of our temptations. You know, scripture says that he experienced everything that we experience except without sin. And so there was the first Adam who failed. And Hebrews introduces us to the second Adam, the better Adam, who did not fail. Ray Stedman writes, almost with a shout, the author cries, but we see Jesus. He is the last hope of a dying race. And that hope lies both in his deity and in his humanity. He alone, as a human being, managed to fulfill what was intended for us from the beginning. He was a little lower than the angels for a short time, but now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So what happens is, is Jesus enters into creation and takes control back from the snake. When he stepped out of heaven, he became a little lower than the angels taking on flesh, but was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. We're told that by the grace of God, he might taste death 
for everyone. And to taste death does not simply mean to die. It means to experience death in all of its horror and humiliation. He comes under the penalty of sin in order to remove it. And so it's the worst kind of death. It's not just torture. It's not just death on a cross, but it's experiencing the sin of the world being placed on him and being crucified. Four, that he might remove it. The emphasis here is that what Jesus did through his death and exaltation was for everyone. Salvation is now open to all. No one who comes to Jesus will be refused. So where Adam in the garden said, not your will, but mine be done. Jesus in another garden, the garden of Gethsemane said, not my will, but yours be done. A reversal of what happened in the garden takes place. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is the reason Jesus came. Jesus came to restore humanity, to restore humans' rightful place in creation. Verse 10 carries this theme forward. Hebrews 2.10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. This is the key claim of the passage, is that God would bring many sons and daughters to glory. In some ways, it's scandalous, it's outrageous that God would do it through the death of his son. And yet the mystery of the incarnation is, is that God would step out of heaven, that the creator becomes one of his creation, that he suffers death for his creation, that they may be saved. And the author of Hebrews says, it was fitting. Now that seems crazy. It was fitting that one who is perfect would die for those who aren't perfect. It's fitting that the one who never did anything wrong is dying for those who have done many things wrong. It is fitting that God would take on flesh I think it was Versace who said um, before he died is, is that, oh, I believe in God, but I don't believe that Jesus took on flesh. That's crazy. You know what? I think that it was just as outrageous to first century readers as it is to us. But it's the heart of the gospel message. The good news that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world. That's John 3.16 is, is he sent his son into the world. John 3.17 is, is not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then it says, but the world stands condemned because it rejected him. Any condemnation that there is now is because people reject the very one whom God sent to take away their condemnation. And oh, do we need that? You know, you think about the Apostle Paul who says is, is that, you know, I'm, the things that I want to do, I can't do. 
And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's in Romans chapter 7, but in Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than everyone and everything and all of creation. He is greater than our sin. It's in this verse that the author reminds us that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. The word in the original language can be translated as author, perfecter, captain, or pioneer. That's kind of interesting. Captain of our salvation. I kind of like that. He is the Savior who blazed the trail of salvation along which alone God's many sons and daughters could be brought to glory. We were prevented from attaining glory, but Jesus has opened the way by his death. He has become the pathway and the pioneer. One might ask is, is what's meant by the author of Hebrews in saying that Jesus was made perfect? Wasn't he already perfect? Here's the answer. The perfect son of God has become his people's perfect savior, opening up the way to God by enduring suffering and death. He is perfection at its best, and he has opened up the perfect pathway. And we now have unimpeded access to God and can experience unbroken communion with him because Christ has led the way. We're going to do two things this morning. Is, is We're going to um, light the Advent candle and we're going to take communion. And I want to invite the worship team to come. And, uh, and if you didn't get a chance to grab communion elements, there's some in the back. And you can slip there during the music and grab those communion elements. We, we celebrate Advent by counting down the weeks from when Advent begins to um, our Christmas Eve service. And so each week we light a candle, and this first candle is often called the prophet's candle. And uh, the first candle symbolizes hope. The second candle is often called the Bethlehem candle. Remembering what Micah foretold Christ, um, of Christ's birth in Bethlehem, and it symbolizes faith. The third candle is the shepherd's candle, and it symbolizes joy. Their response to the angelic message. When Jesus proclaimed, or when Peter proclaimed the message of Jesus' death and resurrection to those who were the first hearers, we're told that they were cut to the heart. I was thinking about that this morning as we um, were getting ready for the services. And I thought, is, is, you know, that's a perfect way to come to communion. 
It's just that thought of being cut to the heart. It, it means almost being arrested, being, being just captured by our need for Jesus. But it says they were cut to the heart knowing that they had actively participated in the crucifixion, which some of them did, or passively participated in the crucifixion because of their sin. And the people that were hearing Peter cried out, what must we do? And it's interesting because Peter didn't say, he didn't say that you have to make yourself good. He didn't say that you have to become better people or that you have to attain some level of perfection. He didn't say that because that's impossible. Instead, when we come, we come with all of our doubts and all of our fighting and all of our fears. We come just as we are. And what we receive is welcome, pardon, cleansing, and relief. And one might say, how is that true? And Peter tells us, he says, repent. Repent. And what that is, simply looks like is just confessing our sins, is saying, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. I have gone my own way. I have said, my will be done. But when we come uh, to Jesus, we, in unison with Jesus, say, not my will. Not my will. Your will, Father. And I was thinking about this because this is a great reminder of why we need to remember Jesus whenever we take communion. It's because we're remembering that it's our sin for which he came And then he came to die on a cross. And we're remembering that death. And as we take communion, we're saying is, is Jesus, thank you for your body. And thank you for your blood. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then a little bit later, he took the cup and he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And and, um, you can remove the bread first and then expose the juice. And at any time during the song, you can take communion. If you haven't committed your life to Christ, this is the time to do so. To say, Jesus, thank you. I put my trust in you. I repent and I say yes to you. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for all of your grace and mercy. Thanks for your love, which is sometimes hard to understand. That your love would literally take on flesh and come to live the life that we can't live. And then would die on the cross because of the life that we've lived. But Lord, to do that in order to restore us to you. And Lord, thanks that we can remember today all that you've done for us. And Lord, may we go out and may we live the life of faith in our community. Being the light of Christ in our homes and in our workplaces. And in our friendships. 
And Lord, may we be strong in faith because this is a world that will cause us to easily drift away, to doubt, to live in fear. But Lord, just to remember is, is that, that you've come to take away our fear, our fear of the things of this life and our fear of death, and rather to give us a confidence that comes from Jesus Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to be obedient to your word. And bless this day and this coming week. In the name of Jesus, amen.